Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson. And I'm Joe Lalo. And for today's show, we're going to talk about some of the challenges of selling books that aren't written to market. Uh, also, the theory of diffusions of innovation and how it might apply to books. And at the end, we're going to give our tips for marketing these suckers that are quite honestly a lot harder to get selling than the written to market stuff. Uh, we At the very end, after all that good stuff, we're also going to finish up with some of your questions uh, on this topic from the Six Figure Authors Facebook group. And you guys had a lot of questions on how to market books that aren't written to market. So we may actually be doing a part two episode. Actually, we are doing a part two episode because I've already put together the notes for it. So even more good stuff to look forward to. But um, for starting today... Uh, you guys probably already know, but we're just going to go over some of the challenges of selling books that aren't written to market or trope or category. And you can kind of guess, like I said, but um, books that are not, that don't fit into a specific genre uh, or category are less likely to be chosen by people. Uh, people are surfing those categories. Basically, even if they don't know it, they're subconsciously looking for more of what they know they already like, like the same, but different, right? Uh, so you may struggle to rank in any of the category lists and get natural traction. Readers are also less likely to click on ads and spend money on books that don't look like themes they already know they like. So one, another challenge is that you can spend a lot of money on advertising that isn't very effective. And you can be super frustrated when you see your peers, people who are perhaps writing more to market, gaining much more success from the same or fewer advertising dollars. And it can be extra frustrating. Like I think we've all felt this. If you don't think their writing is very good and they're still doing better than you and they seem to have raving fans and, and their ads just magically work. Um, one more for me is that the sponsorship sites like BookBub and um, FreeBooksy and all those sites, they, they tend to collect audiences and divide them into categories. Like they ask you what you want to be in when you sign up. And then they send out their newsletters to people that picked the specific genres, the categories. So if yours doesn't fit into one of the genres that they had people sign up for, it can be a struggle to get chosen and your ad will likely underperform even if it is. And I super had that experience with the sci-fi romances when I was working on those. Nobody has that category. I think they put it in paranormal romance. One, the one time I got a book bub from my pen name and it did not do well at all. Um, okay, Joe, do you want to add some of the challenges? Sure. Uh, well, when you're writing to market, you have the benefit of people specifically searching for books that are like yours. It's much less likely that anyone is browsing or searching for books in a genre or topic they're not familiar with, even if they will ultimately enjoy it. And it's literally impossible for them to be browsing in a genre that doesn't have a specific category yet. Now, there's a tremendous number of categories, but lots of them are only really searchable and not actual categories themselves. So if you're not writing to an existing category, uh, discovery becomes automatically more difficult. Also, uh, the algorithm is limited to pushing things that are similar to other books that people have bought. So uh, if your book is off-genre or off-market, it'll probably get left out of recommendation lists until enough people have bought it. And even then, it might not correlate well with their other purchases. And frankly, if enough people have bought it that it's starting to get recommended, then you've sort of gotten past the point where you're having difficulty uh, you know, marketing it. So getting started is tremendously difficult. The algorithm is not against you, but it's certainly not with you when your book doesn't fit neatly into a category that it knows about. And also, if you don't do a good job describing your book, 
readers who purchase it expecting it to be in one of the two genres that it's in, for example, or in the genre that it is most similar to, but you didn't really choose the right one. Basically, you are more likely with an off-genre book or an off-market book to give someone an experience that they weren't expecting. Now, unexpected isn't necessarily bad, but if you bought a book expecting it to be a sci-fi romance and it was, or a paranormal romance, that is, and it turned out to be a sci-fi romance, you're going to be dissatisfied with the book and you're going to leave a bad review and that's going to hamstring the book for future purchases. So uh, it's very, very difficult and very important that you set the correct expectation of readers because there's a, there's a consequence if you don't. Um, also, even if they're not looking for more of what they already like, they're still going to be searching for specific tropes, most likely. Um, and many, if not most readers don't know exactly what they're looking for. And if they do, they don't know what words to use to search for it. And if they do, authors don't know what words and categories to use to help them find their books. Um, and that, that leads, that's very problematic. Um, oftentimes books that aren't written to market are hard to get solid reviews on, which leads to people not downloading them when they see an ad for them. Um, frequently books that aren't written to market fit a certain reader's taste. And that reader is usually the author. Um, authors prefer specific types of books. And because authors tend to read widely when it comes to genres, the specific genres that end up in their books don't always appeal to readers. And this is so me because <laughs> this is so how I am. I read very, very widely, pretty much every genre, almost every genre. And my books represent a lot of genres. Um, Okay, the age of the main character fits here as well. So when you're writing not to market, um, middle grade books are usually about 12-year-olds um, and um, YA are usually about 16-year-olds. Adult books are usually about people older than 30. And of course, there are exceptions. Um, every time I bring this up at a conference, people are like, yeah, but <laughs> so someone usually argues with me, but this is what people usually follow. And not because it's based on traditional publishing, though, maybe it is, you know, chicken versus the egg, which, which came first. I don't know, but younger readers typically go for books about someone a couple years older than them. And teen readers typically read adult books and the adults, adults typically read teen books, not saying all adults do, but the readers of teen books are usually adults. Um, and that's, when it's flips, like when they become adults, they're not reading older than them necessarily. Um, and studies aren't certain why this is the case, though many have speculated it's because adults are missing a, a simpler life, though I don't know why. I'm like, I don't miss the angst from high school. <laughs> but um, anyway, so writing a book about someone who doesn't fit in these age brackets is technically writing out of market and it's harder to sell those books. And like I've, I've talked about this before with my books, I've done a lot of this, the ages, having the ages be off with my books. And it makes it really hard to market because I'm like, is it a YA or is it a middle grade? And is it a YA or is it an adult book? And so just keep that in mind as well. So, I mean, those of you who listen, you probably already knew a bunch of this stuff, but yeah. All right. So I was kind of poking around and listening to some business stuff and, um, I think there's a, there's a good, uh, YouTube speech. It's probably like 10 years old now by Simon Sinek. And in it, he talks about the theory of diffusion of innovation, which you've heard before, but maybe not by its proper name. It came from a 1962 book by Everett Rogers called diffusion of innovations. And it's a way to explain how new technology gradually gets adopted across the population. Even though it's about technology, I was kind of watching this and listening to this and thinking, wow, I think this could apply to books or series or authors too, especially if you're writing something that many would consider new and different, or at least uncommon, AKA not written to market. And I will put a link to, there's a big YouTube article 
explaining the concept in the show notes. But um, here's the basic explanation with the opinions on how this might apply to book the book world or, or mine. They're, they're not on Wikipedia. They may be completely inaccurate, but I don't know. It really seemed to fit. You guys can let me know what you think. Uh, so the theory, uh, diffusion of innovations is the first 2.5% of the market are innovators. These are the people seeking out the cool new stuff. In the book world, maybe if they're big unicorn fans, they're out there scoring the Amazon list, scouring the Amazon list and searching for the next great unicorn epic fantasy novel. And they're going to be super open to clicking ads that are up their alley. If you wrote a book that is at all findable, they're going to find it and they're going to give it a shot. They may even try if it has no reviews and the cover art is horrible. It's their thing. The next 13.5% of the market are early adopters. So these guys will jump in earlier, but they're choosier than the innovators. You're probably going to need some good reviews and good cover art and a nice sample and definitely a good story if you want them to recommend it to others. They might click on ads and try something that has a decent number of reviews. Note, both of these groups often tend to have people in them that are influencers. So if you do wow them with your story, they may have the power to get the word out. The next 34% are the early majority. And these are the people that are going to adopt something after the innovators and the early adopters. Basically, after something is proven, like they're seeing the book in the charts, the books have ton, tons of good reviews. Maybe they've been bestsellers in a category for a while. Maybe they've seen these books mentioned numerous times in their Facebook groups. At that point, they're like, okay, we'll give it a shot. The next 34% are the late majority, and they are probably not going to pick up a new book until their book club chooses it for them, or several reliable friends have recommended it, or it's just all over the place and they're starting to feel social pressure, pressure to try it. The last 16% are the laggards. These are the people that are finally reading Harry Potter in paperback. Probably don't need to worry so much about them, but in 20 years, they could be yours. So kind of my, some more thoughts, thoughts on this is I, I put like the ad clickers only in those first two categories. Um, this is because you, if you really want to reach the early adopters and the early majority, I kind of hit the tipping point and reach mass market success. You need to have a product that pleases the heck out of those earlier groups and turns into something that is recommended. That's because the majority of people will not try something until someone else has tried it first. And that is from the article, from the book, not just me saying that stuff. So there's kind of this chasm that you have to cross to get to the, the majority of the people and, and hit more of a mainstream audience. So, but if you do that, that's kind of how your series can come to have lasting power or a series and it keeps getting purchased and read far beyond any books that you're selling via ads. And honestly, it's pretty rare for this to happen, but you probably have a better shot at it with something new and different than an also ran or more of what's already in the market. So the rewards for writing something original can be immense if it works. And one thing I found interesting that I didn't know and but makes sense now that I've read it is that one of the key elements in the diffusion theory is time. And the quote is, the passage of time is necessary for innovations to be adopted. They are rarely adopted instantaneously. So if you think about it in the book world, this could be mean the rapid release and publish a series a year and move on may actually be working against those of us who do it uh, in this instance. The series that release more slowly over time, maybe a book a year, they may end up having a lot more sticking power and then just kind of slowly, gradu gradually gain momentum so that by the time the later books in the series are released, the fandom has grown and grown and it's huge. And that's to the point when they become huge bestsellers and everybody's heard of them. 
I certainly know from my own experience with my first series, which I released much more slowly just because I didn't write as quickly back then. And I still had the day job. You know, I was releasing the books about six months apart and I had like way more fan art. Uh, Somebody started a fan forum. You know, I I just got a lot more, a lot more musings and speculation about what's going to happen next from the fans that, now they're just kind of like, well, we'll see. There's a new book coming out next month. So it's not to say either way is bad, but it is possibly something to consider. It almost makes me wonder if I should have like one series going that's like a book a year, just slowly, you know, hopefully gathering steam. And then the other stuff, because the rapid release, of course, can uh, really make a lot of money <laughs> very quickly. So there's some appeal there. Uh, so do you guys have any thoughts on any of this? Well, I can tell you that uh, the the steady release, the steady slow release, which is the way basically I've always done it just because of how quickly I can write. Uh, in my experience, it does seem to have sort of at least a bell curve. Like it, it certainly seems to, to develop momentum. And then as the series starts to fatigue, then it starts to travel off again. But uh, I think one of the one of the ways you can look at this is uh, like the time aspect. Originally, I was going to say that it's like uh, comparing the way Disney Plus and Netflix release their shows. Netflix drops everything at once, and they want you to binge it. And it's a gigantic spike in popularity that then sort of goes away quickly. Uh, whereas, like that happened with The Witcher and with Stranger Things, with each of the, each of the seasons, where it'd be huge and everyone's talking about it for like a week, and then it's sort of just where's the next thing. And then Disney Plus does a weekly release. But I realize a better example in this case, because it's an example of an innovation that has since become mainstream, was Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad did not start off as a gigantic hit. It started off as sort of a, you know, barely able to get enough ratings to to keep itself alive. But every week it released a new episode. And each week the ratings grew as people spread the word. And I mean, it happened over the course of multiple seasons. But by the time season five came along, it was, you know, gigantic and there was imitators so yeah the the slow for something that is unproven the slow release that allows it to build momentum and to build you know slowly get confidence of the people seems like it might actually be a winning thing but again it has to genuinely be good and you have to really stick with it because if it doesn't capture anybody's attention then it's never going to become a cult anything uh so you know all this is contingent upon a few other things going your way and those of us here at the Six Figure Authors Podcast, we like cults. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so um, if you do play the long game, keep in mind your long-term goals. Um, so my question would be, how many TV shows have you discovered that got canceled after only a couple of seasons? Um, several of my all-time favorite ones fall into this category, like Better Off Ted, Gallivant. Um, if you're not writing to market and you're playing the long game, it's super important that you remain patient and focus on things that will help your series look better. So good writing and editing, positive reviews, a solid newsletter list, etc. Um, to do this, though, you need patience and you need to give yourself grace. Um, you need to recognize that those authors you follow who are super fast at releasing despite hectic personal lives, and we all probably know those people, are burning the candle at both ends. Um, so there are two Western author, romance authors, Western romance authors, uh, who come to mind while I was uh, looking over this section here, um, that fit this. I'm not going to obviously name either of them. Um, but one of them writes full length novels that are very involved, very rich and very complex and just really well-rounded characters. And every scene pushes the, the book forward, all of that stuff. Um, and the other writes bite-sized bits of candy that my mom calls fluff. And my mom enjoys both authors and, um, 
She tends to reread the ones that took more time to craft, though. Um, and the author who writes, the shorter bits of work burned out really badly, like epically badly. She couldn't maintain the schedule she set for herself. And because her books were candy, um, this is kind of harsh, but they were, they weren't super well thought out. They, the plots didn't hold up as well under scrutiny. Um, I read a bunch of them and, and like, if I'd been the editor, I would have been like, cut this scene, cut this scene, cut the scene. But a lot of the book was made up of scenes like that. Um, and they didn't have the staying power that the books written by her pure author do. Um, and this, this is also what my mom, how my mom felt as well. She just, she's like, I don't reread those ones. And so if you have time to release quality, awesome books frequently, kind of the way, kind, kind of the way Lindsay does, <laughs> totally the way Lindsay does, um, then that's really awesome. But if you don't have time to make those books be really good, then slow down your production and realize the long game is where you're going to be the happiest and most successful. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We tend to think focus so much on how much other authors are making right now. Um, and tons of money might look really amazing and sound great. And it gets posted about in the 20 books, 50 K group all the time. But the most important thing is longevity and sustainability, a little less money each year that gets spread out longer is a lot better overall, not just for your business, but for your, um, like, yeah, not just for your business, but for your financial situation and all of that. All right. Now that we've kind of looked at sort of some problems, the problem and some challenges and getting past that chasm and, you know, getting the word of mouth. I mean, that's kind of what I took away from reading about that stuff is like the advertising is only going to get you so far and only some people are going to be willing to click on those ads and try that book. So you're actually really depending on them really liking it and talking about it. And, and I've been like talking more with my Facebook, uh, author group lately. And I'm, I've started a YouTube channel. Don't know yet if anything will happen of it. It's just answering questions and putting up a couple audiobooks basically for my existing readers. But, you know, I'm trying to encourage them to leave comments. And it's amazing how many people have said, yeah, I recommend your books to my book group or I always tell my friends about your books. And it's, we tend to almost not even think about that because we have no control over it other than we can try to write a good book that people want to recommend. But it does make me wonder how much, especially the backlist selling is how much is a result, like the books I'm not actively advertising of people recommending them. And it sure would be nice if you could know like where people come from, but we're, we're definitely left guessing. We don't have a whole lot of data to work with. But so let's try to give you some actionable advice before we jump into the reader, listener questions, <laughs> whatever you guys are, probably listeners. So here are some tips from all of us for selling these hard to categorize books. And I talk, I've talked about this a lot, but I really think it's a good idea to embrace the free loss leader Uh a book one is ideal, like a complete full nov novel, but at least consider an amazing tie-in short story or novella that you can make free and that will lead other people to check out your book series. And I think that authors get a little hung up on, this is going to be my free, my reader magnet, and I'm going to force people to sign up for my email list to get my free book. Like, no, you do that later. You do something awesome that they want to sign up for your list after they've read your book and they, they enjoy it. I just put your free thing out there everywhere. Put it on Amazon, put it on Wattpad, put it anywhere you can, Barnes and Noble, all the stores, put it out in multiple formats if you can. Um, so be willing to do that. It's sort of like, I've used this uh, example before in talks, so <laughs> apologies if you've heard of it, but 
realize that only the really quirky innovators are going to go to Costco and buy dill pickle potato chips. That's why you have to put out the sample so that everyone who walks by and is even vaguely adventurous can try them with no risk to their pocketbook. If you are writing dill pickle fiction, dill pickle potato chip fiction, you got to be willing to give away the free sample. And in the book world, um, readers really want to see that you can write a complete story. Uh, I think that some people say, well, I'll put out part one or I'll put out, you know, like the first three chapters and have, have a cool cliffhanger and then they'll have to go buy it. Um, you can definitely write a story in such a way that's going to want to lead people into the series, but I would give them the, you know, enough to know that, yes, you can write a complete story. And yeah, it was good. They enjoyed it. And, you know, maybe it's the story of how two characters met or or something that, and if they want more of those characters, they should go on and and check out the series. All right. The next one is kind of to go out and find your tribe. You know, the, the dill pickle potato chip or unicorn epic fantasy romance people, they are out there. And if you can find them, you know, if you can find them while you're still writing the book and working on the book uh, and engage in the community and become a helpful part of it, sometimes you have to make the community if you can't find it out there. And then, you know, once you're a member of the community, you've been giving this good content, you've been giving your opinions, then once you're ready, uh, you know, put your free loss leader in your signature or wherever it's allowed on this forum or Facebook group or whatever you find. Next thing, don't be afraid to change blurbs and covers if things aren't working. Sometimes it's just a lot easier to highlight the things that are similar to what the market likes than emphasize how your book is different. You may get more mileage that way, may have more people willing to pick it up. And then once they start reading, they're like, oh yeah, I like this. Uh, You know, two chapters and nobody cares what the blurb was. Nobody knows what the cover was. So, you know, you may be able to snag some more adventurous readers though in the genre by doing something completely new, but that's why I like just be willing to try. If, if that's something that's just really new and out there doesn't grab people, then maybe you f- figure out the closest genre that your book fits into and make your cover and blurb fit as closely as you can with the surrounding books, you know, while still being true to the story. But, you know, the unicorn epic fantasy romance could go in epic fantasy or fantasy romance, and you might want to pick the one that's the best fit and try to make it fit in as much as you can. Um, I've honestly had more success myself doing it that way than trying to be like, oh, I've written something special. This is my cover. I'm going to make it special. This is my blurb. You're going to see how special it is. You know, can you hear the sound of crickets in the background as nobody cares about your specialness until they're, you know, it's a proven thing. Um, okay. I will pass it to Joe to add a few more tips. All right. Um, if the non-market book or series that you've got planned or that you've already written is a passion project, uh, but you think you're capable of writing something market as well, I would suggest, uh, consider making the, the non-market one, the off, you know, the, the off-market one, your second release. Uh, things will be infinitely easier. If you have even a small, uh, following already, it'll be so much easier if you uh if you have that when you put out the uh the off market thing because then you'll have that seed of an original uh yeah, some of the people who read your first book will follow you to the second book maybe a very small subset but some is better than none it it it, it automatically gets you a couple of reviews it gives you just a little bit of also bought love and all that stuff so if you can if you think you can have a better marketed book out before this one then consider doing that also, uh, if you're in your marketing materials, you should maybe consider focusing on character over plot or setting because every genre, 
uh, is going to need good characters. Genres themselves are usually defined by their settings or their plot. So you can ease people into an unfamiliar genre or a non-existent genre by putting the focus mostly on the cast because that will that will at least be in common with something they've read before. They've read stuff with great characters. You've got great characters. Every good story has good characters. Uh, it's so you can you can hook them on your characters and then they will follow those characters into unfamiliar territory. Hopefully. Um, also, uh, as, as different as your book may be, you would be hard-pressed to piece together something that didn't rely upon at least some very fundamental tropes. There's probably going to be some, some you know, version of the hero's journey, for example. Uh, you, I can't get through this topic without talking about Structophus, which is the pizza dragon book. Uh, yes, it's a story about a dragon who is also a pizza oven, and that's not exactly you know well established in the uh, literary world. But it's also a story about someone who finds a creature who needs his help and gradually warms to the idea of being its protector. And that is so many stories. That's what the Mandalorian is about. That's what Lone Wolf and Cub was about, which is what the Mandalorian is. Uh, and I'm not going to market Pizza Dragon as though it was. If you like the Mandalorian. <laughs> But uh, I can certainly talk about those elements that are, you know, within other popular things. And when people see that that's what the story is about, they'll be like, oh, I like stories like that. Even if they've never considered reading a book with such a bizarre concept. Uh, there's thousands of books that you can then also, by the way, use to guide your marketing as well. So if you get that point across to your readers, they'll be a lot less uh, concerned about taking a weird chance on your book. And... You know, this is a sort of a long game version, but you could consider forming a, a, an ensemble podcast about marketing and then come up with a reason to mention your Pizza Dragon story every few episodes for, you know, half a decade. And uh, people will get morbidly curious and give it a try. It's a lot of work, but sometimes it pays off. <laughs> That's so awesome. That made me really laugh when I saw your your notes on that. Um, yeah, definitely. Maybe I should write a Pizza Dragon story. <laughs> Um, okay. So I have lots of thoughts on this and I hope our listeners don't mind. Um, but something I've noticed when it comes to my clients and then other authors, um, even authors who've been doing this for a while and, um, marketing is this, there are two things basically to hold people back from really marketing well. And those are first, a lack of confidence and second, a lack of knowledge. A lot of people would say, well, what about time? And what about money? Uh, my response to that is if you've overcome the above barriers, so fear of the unknown and fear of rejection, you'll find the time to market and you'll find the money. And I'm not saying you'll randomly come across a thousand dollars on the street, but most successful marketing can be done or at least started with a hundred dollars or less. Um, and I honestly don't know anyone who can't find a hundred dollars. And if you feel that's you, then sell some furniture. <laughs> um, just do what you have to, to come up with a little bit of money. Um, if you learn how to market well, and I'll talk about that in just a little bit, you'll make money off of your books. And if you invest that back into more smart marketing, money so soon won't be as much of an issue. And this is coming from somebody who I make my money off of my series after they've been released, not off of the, the launches and on books that are mostly very not written to market. Um, Okay. So of course, this is all assuming you have several books in your catalog for people to read. Uh, marketing before you have a way to make money off of your books isn't going to help much. And so I don't, I mean, none of us recommend marketing a whole ton until you have a bunch of books available. Um, okay. So my tips to learn how to market first, listen to podcasts and read books. And I'm not just saying listen to our podcast. You know, we've talked about this before. Um, surrounding yourself 
with people who know how to do this is the best way to learn how to do it. And that includes listening to them and reading books. Um, paying attention in Facebook groups is really great. You know, I mean, 20 books to 50 K when people post their success stories, what are they saying? What are they doing? You know, what are they doing that that's bringing in those awesome royalties and then be organized. If you see or hear something that worked for somebody, write it down, keep a folder of marketing ideas with different files in it, in it for each idea, along with the steps that people followed to pull those ideas off. And then of course, you're going to want to practice and test things out. Um, and then a quick note about overcoming a lack of confidence. Sometimes in the beginning, inefficient marketing methods can give you the boost in confidence to try out other ways. Um, and so what I mean is this, um, if running a Facebook event and having a small handful of readers raving about your books helps you feel confident enough to learn something much more difficult like Facebook ads or, you know, um, learning how to get your book of it ready to apply for BookBub, things like that, then do it. Um, just don't spend the rest of your time doing things that aren't very effective. And we've said before, Facebook events aren't super effective. There's a bunch of things that just aren't really effective, but they can increase your um, confidence, which is really important when it comes to marketing. Um, if you find yourself fearing rejection and struggling with confidence, then dip your toe into easier to conquer waters. Um, and then a couple of my thoughts on marketing books that aren't written to market. So recognize that sometimes you need to give a little more than just a free book one. Uh, the skeptical readers, and I'm very much a skeptical reader, um, sometimes need a bit of encouragement to download book two. Um, just because they liked book one does not mean they'll like another. And that's what they're thinking to themselves. Like, you know, it's been, there's been several times when I absolutely fall in love with the series. And then the second book just does not, it just does not carry the story as well as the first. And I lose interest. Um, so to continue the Costco analogy that Lindsay brought up, the store gives you a free sample for your first try and they let you know there's a coupon that week for your second try. And it helps, that helps remove barriers to entry. So your first book could be free. Your second book could be 99 cents or two ninety nine If your regular price is, is three ninety nine or four ninety nine. Um, and then this is something I also do have two sets of marketing plans for each series that is written, written, that is not written to market. So two sets of covers, two sets of descriptions, two sets of categories and keywords. Um, like I said, this is something I've done for a long time. And then depending on what's going on in the world, I swap those out to reach different readers. So for example, my Mosaic Chronicles is not written to market and I swapped it out to, um, to, um, what's the word? appeal to the Academy romance, Academy, urban fantasy market, because they were, I mean, I, they're not rent to market. There's like 20 genres in it. Right. Uh, and had Academy is one of them. And that really worked for a while. And I just switched, switched, switched it back to the general contemporary fantasy. Um, anyway, so I swap out to reach different readers and yes, it does cost more having, you know, you need to have two sets of book covers for all of the books, but not writing to market is a harder path anyway. So you're going to want to give yourself as much leeway and as much room to grow and wiggle as possible. Um, and of course this goes without saying, but check and double check that any marketing material you use is spot on. Um, even if the cover isn't to market, if it's beautiful and professional, it'll grab people's eyes. Same with the description, the description, if it's well-written, even if different, it'll pique curiosity. You can test those out using Facebook ads. I've talked about that before. Um, just run a Facebook ad to your book and have two of them going one with one book cover, one with the other book cover and see for that audience, which one does the best and then do the same with the description. Um, focus on running regular promotions. Don't let a month go by where you aren't having your perma-free first in series or box set be in a promo on one of the bigger marketing sites. So like Robin Reed's Book Barbarian, um, ENT, let's see, Free Booksy, Book Sense, those kinds of things. And then make sure you build up your newsletter list because, you know, for obvious reasons, once you have people on your list, it's a lot easier to sell your books. And then this is something else that I recommend 
my clients do. Tackle one aspect of marketing at a time. Pick the one thing that intrigues you the most or that you feel you're most capable of learning and focus on that until you've mastered it. And then brainstorm ways to get your freebie into readers' hands. You may need to concentrate on building your list through inorganic methods. Uh, There's nothing to be embarrassed about when it comes to newsletter lists if you're building it ethically. Who cares if you paid for every subscriber in some way if your list converts and they chose to be there? Uh, There aren't any... aren't any newsletter Nazis out there who ask you at every turn if you used a Ryan Z promotion instead of letting your list grow organically. It's just not something that, that I, I just, it's just not something that factors factors to me and most authors. Um, and that said, that said though, recognize that growing your list will be easier and there'll be stronger subscribers if they join after reading a book. But if you have a good automation sequence in place, um, you can convert those inorganic subscribers to raving, raving fans or is it raging? Super excited fans. <laughs> anyway, I think they're that's raving. <laughs> I think raving. they're raving. Um, yeah, good point with the newsletter. Like I have always done it where I only try to get people that have read the book one first, at least. But I know like um, Patty Jensen, I think she has two. Uh, she has one like for those fans that already know they like the writing. And then another one where she's giving away her free books, trying to get them on the newsletter and then trickling out more stuff uh, to that particular newsletter. So you certainly can convert people that are uh, maybe less engaged or they're not sure yet into readers. You might just have to go not to the hard sell right away. It sounds like you've done that too, Andrea. Yep, I have. I've done, I mean, I've I've had a list of completely organic readers up to a thousand, two thousand 6,000. And I've had lists up to 40 and 50,000 that weren't organic. And I just whittle them down and I, you know, just, you know, work on them, use my uh, automation sequences. Sometimes I have them go through my automation sequence more than once. So if I have a giveaway running, um, people who aren't engaged in your books are almost always interested in a giveaway. And so they sign up for the giveaway and that automatically signs them up for that newsletter that's specifically set for the giveaway. And I've had them get converted at that point. And so sometimes, I mean, this is something that we talked about in the newsletter marketing course or episodes that we did a little bit ago. Some people take months and months to decide to buy and you don't know what their tipping point is going to be. So giving them every opportunity is a good idea. All right, let's jump into our listener questions. Uh, Andrea, do you want to ask the first one? Since it's in purple, it's for you. <laughs> purple, purple is a good color. Okay. Alicia says, do you try to use comp titles for these types of books? She's talking about the not written to market books like, Blah, blah, blah meets yakety yak. This is very official language she's using and I love it (laughs) or whatever. Or do you think comps only work well for books that fit perfectly? Um, I think that for ad copy and for social media posts and stuff like that, I will, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, this meets that, or I'll talk about the things that it compares to, but I generally avoid drawing comparisons to other books, uh, for an off genre book in the actual description for like prospective buyers, you know, the, the blur, the on, the on store blurb, because either, you know, either you'll have to pick something that, as you suggest, isn't a great fit. Uh, and then you have the problem of potentially disappointing someone or else, uh, you have to pick something that is also off genre and therefore isn't terribly useful because it's going to be just as, as strange as, as yours is to, to new readers. So I don't know that, um, that using comps in actual blurb is a, is a, uh, is a great, uh, idea. But absolutely, when you're when you're trying to give the the, the description to, to somebody in a more uh, casual setting, for sure. I have very occasionally done this, and it's kind of eh. 
on the results. You can certainly try it, uh, both for blurbs and for marketing copy. Like that can be helpful when you have a really limited ad space and you're trying to do text ads to go with your book cover. Um, I think I did it for my, I tried it for my Star Kingdom series. I think I had Big, big Bang Theory meets Firefly or something like that, which to me was perfectly obvious geeks on adventures in space. But I cannot say that it particularly did well. And I actually used it in the ad copy along with other, you know, I tried other uh, ad copy like on Amazon ads and, you know, it didn't particularly perform well. So uh, you can try it. There's no harm in trying. But I, I feel like this is usually recommended advice for your elevator pitch when you're trying to get an agent or a publisher or someone who's going to be really well versed with all the literature and movies in your genre. Uh, if you do do it, make sure to do things that are super popular. Um, maybe books, I mean, maybe movies or TV shows instead of books, just because more people are familiar with movies. Uh, and don't do more than two things. Uh, I once saw a list of somebody who was like, for fans of this, 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 and this, he seriously had five things he referenced. And I hadn't heard of two of the things. And I was probably his target audience. It was in the genre I write and read in. It just made it sound like a super confusing book. So you can try it. Uh, I don't know that I'd recommend it necessarily. Yeah. Um, like the others, I've tried this in the past, but it's really, really hard to find a perfect comp when you're not writing to market. And my results have all been lackluster. Even when I've asked readers for ideas, they haven't agreed on what my, you know, what the comparable books and movies, et cetera, would be. All right. Next question is from Jeff. I love to hear ideas on how to cultivate a niche subgenre into something larger. So I think this is something that happens if the story really resonates in the niche it's in and your fans rave brave and recommend it to everyone. The best we can probably do is to keep marketing and try to keep selling that book one year in and year out and hope that over time this happens. Um, I also think it's going to be a lot more likely if it isn't so esoteric as to be inaccessible to a mainstream audience. The complete lack of science or any thought required at all in Star Wars is probably why it ended up being watched by so many people who are not science fiction fans. Um, I put my Dragon Blood series in the steampunk, steampunk category when it was new on Amazon, and I put kind of steampunky-ish covers on it. But it was very steampunk light with some biplanes and 1800s tech. But other than that, it was really more of a high fantasy slash adventure kind of vibe. And it has done well for me the, over, over the years and managed to cross over and appeal to a lot of the epic high fantasy folks. Whereas I see stuff that really... Uh, emphasizes the steampunkiness. Uh, sometimes it, that's such a little niche genre that the epic fantasy fans are like, eh, you know, especially with the things that are set in Victorian England, uh, if they prefer secondary made up worlds, which mine was, uh, they might not go for that. So that's something to consider. It's hard if you've already written the book and maybe it's esoteric, maybe it's special, maybe it's really niche. You know, but that doesn't necessarily mean it can't catch on. It's just, it may be a little harder. The, the more in-jokes there are and things that only people in that niche are going to understand, the, the less potential maybe for mainstream appeal. Um, I, in, in my case, if you really want to grow a community, you're going to have to consider building one yourself. Uh, even if you're the only, even if you're only planting seeds, uh, I, we, we've spoken a fair amount about lit RPG and early on lit RPG was aggressively recruiting. They, uh, the, the people who were into it put together discord, they put together forums and they were constantly talking to people about purchasing, reading and writing. Like everybody wanted more of it. So if you really want to grow a niche into something larger, 
you might consider starting a subreddit or finding forums where similar topics are discussed. You don't want to show up and just start banging a drum in a way that seems disingenuous uh, because that's just self-promotion and there's usually rules against that. But starting a conversation and providing a place for that conversation to develop is probably okay. In fact, that's more or less the way the internet works. And from there, it's just a matter of keeping the conversation going. Ideally, you'll end up with folks bringing their friends to the party and then you're on your way. And the goal would eventually be for the community to sort of be self-perpetuating because doing all the legwork to keep the community going yourself Number one means that it's not natural. It's not organically uh, kept alive. It's sort of on life support. And number two, that's an enormous amount of dubiously useful uh, effort that you're putting into something. Like certainly a community is useful, but if you're putting huge amounts of work into keeping it going, that work could be better spent elsewhere. So you consider trying to start your own, but also just remember if it doesn't get going, let it go. Yeah, um, if you can find authors who write in a similar niche, um, if they're successful authors, that's the best route naturally. But if they aren't and they're just really good authors, that's a great place to start. Um, if you try to do this with authors who don't write well or who aren't professional but are willing, uh, it'll end up being a waste of time. Um, but basically cultivating a niche subgenre isn't something you're going to be able to do yourself unless you're reading very rapidly and have excellent books because it takes a lot of books to move the needle and timing is very important. So it needs, meaning it needs to happen fast, kind of like what Joe was saying about lit RPG. And I remember that everybody was talking about it. It was huge, you know, so. It does help if the niche that you're trying to cultivate is basically all the people already playing World of Warcraft and all of the video games out there. So it's like, they're just been waiting for their books to go with their gaming hobby. I do gaming's continuing to grow. So that's not a bad thing to hit your way into, but certainly this can apply for lots of other things. Uh, Sean, I believe this question is kind of angled towards Joe, but we'll all take a stab at answering it. Does it help to write short stories to be included in pizza dragon anthologies? All right. Uh, so, there are two short stories associated with Pizza Dragon. And while technically both of them did end up in anthologies, neither of them were written for anthologies. Uh, the first was a free short that was released alongside the book as a newsletter perk. And it was mostly to help get my own fans to purchase what I knew was going to be a weird purchase. Also, it was a reader magnet and all that stuff. Uh, the second was a short follow-up that was actually voted into existence by patrons because believe it or not, Pizza Dragon has developed a small following. And I, I, it, I let the inmates run the asylum, even though I know that it's not a financial win for me. Uh, I do like to satisfy people who have expectations of me. So periodically I still, I still feed the, the, uh, the fandom that I've created for my, my lesser works. Um, I've since released both of those stories in short story anthologies of my own, but that served virtually no marketing purpose. It was just an additional release this year. So again, if I was trying to create a market for Pizza Dragon, I might have tried to recruit people to do an anthology, but really, I don't think that would be worth the effort. I think that, uh, you know, you'd be better off finding better, you know, other topics to write in or other ways to, to push your marketing. So I've been in a few anthologies, and just to be clear, we're talking about short stories in collections with other authors of short stories, not like the multi-author 
book bundle box set that's like 20 complete novels or eight complete novels because those can be quite effective that's a little something different um i so i feel that in short short stories and anthologies the amount of people who will read your story there and then go on and buy the book is pretty limited i always felt like honestly i was kind of dragging my own fans to buy these anthologies because i had a new story they hadn't written in it and most most anthologies don't sell very well and very few publishers are going to be open to making them free which is kind of what I always recommend with the short tie-in story like that. So my suggestion would be to publish your short story on your own, the rocking cover, and consider making it free and putting it out there everywhere you can. Most of the time, I don't recommend spending a ton of money on covers for short stories, but pick this one to spend money on, this one that you're hoping will you know, go out, go out there in all the free places and be the thing that attracts eyeballs and gets people into your series. Uh, and I'll pass that to Andrea. Um, so there are two exceptions for anthologies that I've seen that have actually been six that are successful or tend to be, or can be or whatever. Um, so horror-esque ones, um, in horror anthologies, they tend to have a rabid following that goes on to devour the newly discovered authors, other books. Um, I've been in, involved in a couple of those and there are a couple that are put together by some author friends. And it's almost always the same author friends. usually like Larry Korea's in it. Usually, um, uh, let's see, what's his name? Jeez, man. Michael Brent Collings is in it. And, um, his dad, Michael Collings, Dr. Michael Collings, they're usually in those. And, um, so those ones have been really, really good. They've done really well. And then, um, and then there's romance anthologies that I've seen that have done really well. Um, I've personally found new authors reading both. And I've known a lot of authors who've been successful primarily off of their romance anthologies. So I have one author friend who puts together these anthologies and she gets book bubs on them almost every single time she puts one together. So that's really, really great. Um, she's got that, that rapport with BookBub, So they know that the short, the stories that she's picking are good. And then those authors do end up getting a lot of awesome stuff out of that. But to answer the question more directly, I've personally never been in a pizza dragon anthology and I'm going to go ahead and ask the next question. <laughs> okay. So Renee says, I've been thinking about changing my category to new adult historical fiction, but when I searched the new adult, new adult, geez, man, genre that has apparently been around since 2009, most of it is bare chested men and YA, nothing against bare chested men, but I'm not having much luck in finding new adult anything. Uh, you're going to find bare chests in most uh, genres these days because romance authors are just like the rest of us and they're looking for additional genres that fit that they can stand out in. So they're going to branch out. I remember when I released my superhero book, I did a search for superheroes and found that that was mostly uh, werewolf romance. Like, okay, <laughs> that's, I suppose they do have powers that are different from normal people. So just be aware that this is not going to be an uncommon thing, no matter what genre you're looking at. As for new adult, uh, at least from my very limited perspective, it seems like the term that new, the term new adult is one that publishers use much more commonly than readers. So the number of people searching or browsing that category might be more limited than you think it is. So, I mean, certainly do the move if you feel like it'll work, but uh, I don't think it'll, I think it'll be sort of lateral in terms of marketing potential. Right. I would say you could try putting it in there if you have extra genres, but I think most of your readers are going to find you via the historical fiction categories. I feel like historical fiction is kind of like fantasy and sci-fi where you're either a fan of it and you're looking for books like that, or you're, you're not interested in reading it. You're like, nope, not my thing. So I don't think people browsing new adult are going to be like, Ooh, you know, let's check out this 1700s uh, colonial America story. This looks like fun. So 
you know, and I'm not sure how much that term new adult has seeped into the lingo for other genres. You could try doing two different blurbs, uh, you know, running them, a, wait a couple of weeks, you know, test it, run some ads to it and, and kind of compare the results and AB split test, if you will, to see if new adult is useful as a selling point uh, in the blurb and then the keywords. Uh, you know, you could also throw it on the cover of the book. Totally up to you. Um, you know, you never know till you'll try. Like I said, I, I think it's kind of in contemporary romance more so, but um, like I said, you never know. Give it a shot. Yeah. Um, so new adult is synonymous with bare chested men. Um, the reason new adult exists is for younger characters. So 18 and older to have fun with bare chested men. Um, I'd avoid putting something into new adult. If you don't have bare chested events in the book, <laughs> I can't even say that without smiling. <laughs> so I, and that's seriously why the term new adult came about was so that they could have slightly younger characters, um, having sex in the book and get away with it better. And it was not just a little bit, but a lot. So, um, so maybe in the future, new adult will leak into other genres, but for now it hasn't. So if your books don't have lots of excitingness in them in that area, then I, I personally wouldn't, um, put my books in there. All right. Our next question is from Daryl. Uh, I have my book, Jane Austen versus Dracula, that a lot of people assume is romance. It's more horror action than adventure. How do you market a book that isn't easy to classify? Who do you market to when it's not easy to define your target audience? And if you write a book that isn't to market and doesn't hit the tropes, it doesn't mean it's a bad book. It just doesn't fit the categories. Should indie authors turn to trad publishers in those circumstances because they get bigger pockets and will be able to more effectively promote the novel? All right. Jane Austen versus Dracula and other questions. So I have a few thoughts here. First off is if people are mistaking what it is from your Jane Austen versus Dracula blurb, it may be worth rethinking if those are the best comparisons you can make uh, with something else be less ambiguous than Jane Austen. I know she's not really a romance author, but I feel like she, she, got, she gets lumped in with romance a lot. And uh, probably people have a lot of preconceptions about that. Uh, so that could be why blurb readers are getting that vibe. So who do you market to when it's not easy to define your target audience? I think you're, this is where you got to do like the market research and really kind of figure out who your target audience is. Even it's a bit, it can be a bit of a guess in the beginning, but if people have emailed you and let you know about themselves, you start to get the vibe of who they are. Uh, uh, you know, often they tell you like, I'm this age and I like your books, even though I'm this age or I, you know, I, I feel like really young readers, I mentioned this before, really young readers and older readers are the ones who identify themselves by age, but, um, you can kind of get the vibe too from other, uh, people. And so I realized I usually get kind of the mid thirties, 40 and up people who like fantasy and fewer of the YA and definitely fewer of those new adult readers. Uh, just kidding. Um, not really. So, and that, you know, it should be obvious since that's kind of my age, but, um, you know, not, you know, sometimes older folks write young adult. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but that seems to be who's drawn to my stuff. And so I really have a firm image in my mind now of who that target audience is. And I might go ahead and target 18 and up when I'm doing my like Facebook ads. But if I really want to dial in, I'm probably going to go like 30, 
to 65 or whatever, 65 and up. Um, it can be hard to know this stuff if you're not selling many copies, but what you can do at the end of the book is invite people to email you if they finished it and just say, Hey, let me know what other books you like. And right away, if you get a few people doing that, you kind of like, Oh, oh, this reader also liked these books by this author. So maybe that is somebody I should be targeting with my ads. And you can also see what other authors show up in your also bots at Amazon. Uh, this is the whole event, uh, you know, coming of Amazon advertising has made this a lot less authentic, at least for bigger selling authors, because they tend to get targeted by a lot of people and therefore other authors that are targeting them start to show up in the also bots. But if you're not selling that much yet, probably nobody's really targeting you. So you may have some pretty good comps there in your also bots. Um, the last thing would be just to try uh, running your ads to different demographics on Facebook and figure out which ones convert best. Like do three ads that are all the same copy and just run them to different uh, age targets or different, you know, male, female, uh, different income levels, whatever you want to break it up by. Facebook is one of the few, if not the only place where you can actually do that. So that's kind of handy. Uh, last part of your question was, should indies turn to trad if it's hard to market? So it's probably going to be just as hard for them to market. And unless you get a big advance, they probably won't bother throwing much money behind it. Uh, and then you're stuck. If you do get a deal with their pricing and not being able to try things like free runs, uh, you know, and things like that. So, uh, you know, you can give it a shot. But uh, another thing is if it's already published, they're not going to want it. If it's published and it didn't do tremendously well, they're not going to be interested. So, you know. That, I guess that's my thoughts on that. Trad isn't necessarily the answer, uh, unless you, you, know, you got to think out and think it out in advance. If you are going to give it a shot, not after the book is already out there. Cause they will, they will look, they will find out and be like, uh huh. They sold five copies. We don't want it. So, all right. On that note, I'll pass it to Joe. All right. Uh, to start with, with people not quite understanding what genre your book is in, I think you can go a long way to establishing tone and genre, uh, by making the cover follow the tropes of that genre. With the exception of some shift to romance, you're going to have pretty good, a pretty easy time telling the difference between horror and romance by the cover. And even in the instances of paranormal romance where there's monsters as romantic, you know, focuses, it's pretty clear from just the structure of the cover, which it's supposed to be. So you can usually make it pretty clear what kind of uh, book you're producing with the cover. Marketing a book that isn't easy to classify, that's usually going to come down to finding the elements of your book that people look for in all books. Like I said earlier, if you've got a fascinating protagonist or a cool plot, you can market on those. Targeting the audiences uh, of genres that are most likely to be looking for that stuff is another thing. A lot of people are going to be looking at cross-genre or otherwise uncharted book types as being a gimmick. So uh, what you can do is try to make it clear that the skeleton of the book is solid because, you know, the gimmick is what makes it stand out, but gimmicks only last for a little while. They, 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 they outlive their welcome. So uh, you have to get your point across, not just in the book, but in the blurb and marketing material that there is good stuff in here. It's not just, you know, uh, an oddball. And when it comes to finding your target audience, you're going to, I would recommend starting with yourself. Presumably you wrote this book because it's the kind of story you would like. And, you know, your readers are going to be the kind of people that taste similar to you as a result. So did this story have an inspiration? Did it have multiple inspirations? Perhaps Jane Austen and Dracula? Well, then target people who are fans of that stuff. But also, you know, if you can find a way to find the ones who are maybe 
fans of that stuff and other things. Uh, there'll be a fair amount of experimentation. You're going to have to keep close tabs on which targeting is working best, but there's lots of li little angles and you can come in from to find people who are interested in your books. And when it comes to trad, I'm a little biased because of my less than stellar history with traditional publishing. But I think that the effort that goes into getting a trad deal is going to be well, much better served, uh, learning to craft better and market better on your own. It's not easy to get a trad contract. And, uh, if you're already going to be doing something difficult, if you're doing something difficult for yourself and reaping all of the benefits, I think it's going to be better overall. So my question is, is your book along the lines of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? Because um, if it's even remotely like that, I would study what they did with those books and see if you can replicate it. Uh, and then also recognize that that ship may have sold already. Uh, Jane Austen-esque rewrites, including the horror ones, were really popular five years ago, but I almost never hear anyone talking about them anymore. Uh, that said, trends tend to come back. So if your book is like P and P and Zs, <laughs> target them with your ads. And if or when it comes back around, you'll be in a good place. All right. Well, we are coming up on the hour and we, that was actually the last question that I put in the document for this week. So we will be having a part two, not next week because we have a guest, but the week after that, answering more of your questions on uh, how to sell books that are not written to market, which is interesting. That was a very popular topic in the Facebook group, which leads me to believe most of us don't write to market, <laughs> especially not with your first series. I think Andrea and we were talking about this uh, before the show or on the Twitter chat or something. Most authors just write the the book that they want to write. We don't. You don't even think about marketing until later, and that's probably good. You, you know, you should write the thing you're most passionate about first, and then figure it out. Um, but there's always hope. And yay, if it doesn't work out as well as you want it, you know what you know now, and you can try something more to market later, or just try again, knowing what you've learned from the first book or series. On that note, we will head off for the day or the night, whatever time it is when you're listening to this. Thank you for listening to the show as always. And thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing it. You can find the show notes, uh, I'll link to that Wikipedia article, or you can just look up diffusion of innovations, uh, at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six. And we are still doing the Facebook group, six figure authors on Facebook. Thanks everyone. Have a great week. See ya. So long everybody. <laughs>